This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake. Created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Aloe was a place created for addicts to be treated with compassion and connection and not control. They have decades and decades of experience treating addicts with co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They provide addicts with a comfortable detox, which is so critical when you're kicking heroin or alcohol or benzos or really anything. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, surfing, you name it, they've got it. And most importantly, if you're fucked and you need a place to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the Sober Buddy app. It is now available and I'm super excited. Many of you love the Sober Buddy daily email and this app takes it all to the next level. Sober Buddy checks in on you every day to see how you're feeling and gives you tips and motivation based on your mood. The daily challenges shift and change based on how you interact with Buddy on the app, and it also keeps track of all your challenges and lists. Plus, there's a super satisfying sober tracker with real confetti explosions. Search Your Sober Buddy in the App Store. Again, it's Your Sober Buddy. Seriously, Dopey Nation, this is a great tool. If you're struggling and you like apps, the Your Sober Buddy app could really be another uh, really helpful thing in your recovery. Give it a try, the Sober Buddy app. And last but not least, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon page. We're up to like 12 episodes of Dopey Patreon. They're all for free. They're all available at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. This week, we have the amazing Megan from the Addictionary Podcast and her Wicked Fire Boston accent. And me and her make peace, and she really brings the Dopey as well. You hear the inside story of our old beef. Um... Throw some bucks to the Dopey Patreon. It helps make Dopey better. It helps make Dopey more comprehensive. And it is a step for me to get out of my day job in the deli. So the Dopey Patreon account. I can't say enough about it. Also, www.dopeypodcast.com. We have amazing gear. There's new shit. There's tote bags. There's fucking Dopey mugs. Coffee mugs are now available. Plus a ton of really cool shirts tank tops, uh, long sleeves and hoodies, all available at dopeypodcast.com. All the merch is made by our friends who are also recovering heroin addicts in SRO prints. Check it out, dopeypodcast.com. And if you guys want any stickers or you want the snapbacks, and I might have a few of those, and I definitely have socks, and that's all available. Just Venmo me, write me, and I'll, I'll hook it up. Now, enough with the fucking ads. Here is the show. the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and it is my great pleasure to welcome back 
my friend Ray to Dopey. Hi, Dave. Welcome back. Hey, hey man. Hey, man. So, for those of you... I, I just realized your, your, your Dopey opening voice is the same voice as on your uh, voicemail. So like, hi, you reached Dave. <laughs> you said my name, you fucker. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> what, you think my voice is higher in the beginning of Dopey and on my voicemail message? Yeah, when you go, hello, welcome to Dopey, the podcast. That's where I sound, uh, I sound, that's my professional uh, that's, presenter. That's your announcer voice. That's my presenter award voice. Hello, and you have reached Movie Phone. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? So, Ray, if you guys don't listen to Patreon, Ray is, I, I've convinced Ray, I've, I've forced Ray, I've pressured Ray into coming on Dopey Patreon for some classic appearances. Check out Ray on Dopey Patreon. But now he's back on the show. Uh, strong in his recovery, fresh out the box. How you feel, Ray? Straight out of rehab. You didn't go to rehab. <laughs> no, I didn't go to rehab. I'm good. I'm good, and I'm getting off of sertraline, and I'm going to a meeting every day, and I'm talking to my sponsor every day, and I'm writing a gratitude list, and I'm praying when I wake up. So, Ray, and all that. What What are know? you grateful for? We'll say again. Tell us what you're grateful for. Oh, I have a gratitude list of um, my, my apartment, my yes. work situation, yes. my uh, um, my health, my money, my finances. Um, Are you grateful for all the strange young international men that want to sext you? Even yes. heterosexual men that want to sext you? <laughs> Do they? Yeah, the dude in, in Ireland. Are you grateful for all of these hetero and, uh, bi, you know, dual... What do you call somebody who, uh, I guess, bisexual men? Bisexual. Who, who send dick pics and want to have sex with you over the internet? Yeah, men who become gay when they take cocaine and then they want to have gay phone sex. You know, nothing happens to me. When I take cocaine, it's like fucking... It's it's like... Have you ever taken ephedrine? No. Well, it's isn't that like an antihistamine? I don't know. When I was a kid, when I was in college, right, at Ithaca College, everybody would go to the gas station and buy bottles of ephedrine, which was like trucker speed. You know, it was oh, like, it's kind of like, like no, Sudafed. But Sudafed makes me tired. Oh, well, your body chemistry is obviously, you know, like that. Right. Does, and, does and, heroin give you energy? Do you get energy when you take opiates? Well, I haven't taken heroin in a long time, but the first dose, the first dose gives me, gives me energy. Yes. I, 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 for, yeah. I remember I used to get, I used to get high on heroin and just clean. Um, but what I was going to say is that when I would take Coke, it would make me feel like ephedrine, which is just like buzzed. Like I never just got the, a good high off of it. And I shot You just Coke. got the bad parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. I just got the bad parts and I would shoot like big shots of Coke once in a while just to see if it was as good as everybody said, and it never did it for me. No. Well, yeah, that's your body is just like that. Probably a small percentage of people. I've heard of that before, people that, like, get energy from opiates and do not like stimulants. Except I did want to have sex with men when I did Coke. Besides that, No, I didn't. didn't. (laughs) But you were saying that that Coke has has turned out heterosexual men is where you're going. well, Coke makes you think crazy sex thoughts. I mean, everybody, not everybody, but large, when you take Coke, you have like your sex thoughts change and, you know, things you never thought of doing before. It makes you kinky. What is, what do the Coke thoughts do, do to you, Ray? It makes me kinky. 
What do you like? Yeah, my, what, like what kind of but, stuff? Like let's have sex on the toilet. Let me eat your pubes. N- stuff like that. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cut off your pubes. I want to use your it pubes. Makes you like a little further out. I want to use your pubes you, to garnish my salad. You don't normally want to do it for me and i've heard other people say that does it make you want to use their pubes to garnish your salad no it doesn't does it make you want to floss their, your teeth with their pubic hair <laughs> no now anyway let's get back to your but you you know you're celibate but you do enjoy a little sexting with with strange men and your sponsor is okay with that correct uh, no my sponsor is not okay with that and uh, we it's it's ended all that's over Yep. So now that's not on your gratitude list. Um, well, I guess, yeah. I mean, it was more specific that it was like it, that specific case. I think if it was just a stranger, that it would be, um, you know, different. I don't understand what you're saying. It was more that it was like somebody I knew and I felt like I was taking advantage of their using drugs. Okay, so that's what he didn't like. So if it was a stranger who's sending you dick pics, like a weirdo in the dopey nation, that would be okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so tell us, so you're, you're going to Zoom meetings, you're fucking talking to your sponsor, you're writing gratitude lists, you're off of dopey Zoom still, which is fine, yeah. no judgment. And before we move any further, we need to give a shout out to the dopey Zoom folks. Dopey Zoom, I think, is a great intro to people who are scared of doing 12-step uh, yeah. 12 step, step zoom so they could go to dopey zoom i got a message from ben who said that jeff scott i don't want to call her colleen mc so i'm going to call her mc colleen like she's mm-hmm. like a rapper like yeah. mc colleen you know what i mean you don't think that's funny all right and yeah, dope, huh dopey zoom is great they're like what and they're doing their own thing like they're doing alt recovery and they're doing it really well so now you're going to you give know? them a shout out so they don't turn on you basically yeah all right no no you support. Did you have more, more people you wanted to shout out to? Yes, we want to shout out to Anne, Liz, Mike, Aaron, and Brianna. Thank you for being about that dopey Zoom. Um, and thank you for keeping it going. And Ray endorses dopey Zoom. He's just taking a break, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to these... <laughs> I'm going to these AA Zooms every day, and it's it's a, it's not fun. It's like, ooh, I said I would do it, and I'm doing it, but it's a drag going every day. It's a drag, man. It's boring. It's like I sometimes turn my camera off, and I'll be, like, making breakfast or something. You, like, shut the camera off, and you put on the ringlet YouTube videos? See what, yeah. <laughs> what are what are these wrestlers in the Ukraine doing during the during the, <laughs> yeah. the twelve step Zoom? That's the thing with Zoom is you can be like staring at your computer, but you're not look looking at the meeting. You're like on YouTube or Facebook or something. Oh yeah, I know. I I I have never done well with the twelve step Zoom. Like I've I've struggled with it. So I'm very grateful that I've still been able to go to my little beach meeting. Um, and then before we move on. Dopey Nation, it's very important that you know this. July 24th is Dopey Day. It's the two-year anniversary of Chris's uh, horrible death, uh, overdose. And for Dopey Day, everybody is putting the Dopey logo over their eyes, including Ray. Right, Ray? I'll do it, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see, like, if anybody amongst my friends that I don't know is a Dopey, dopey listener. I guess if they were friends of mine, they would 
have contacted me then from Facebook. Well, the idea is to get everybody who listens to Dopey to do it, uh, to show solidarity with addicts, to kind of show that you don't know who's an addict, you don't know who's in recovery. Uh, and if that doesn't float your boat, you do it for Chris, you know, and you do it for the show. And you get your friends to do it because I, I just see it as like, did you ever see the movie V for Vendetta? Uh, I've seen a bit of it. Dude, you should watch it. You watch so many Netflix movies. It's on Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw it on there yesterday. It's so good. And and basically everybody wears this mask, so you don't know who's who. You don't know who V is. If we all wear the dopey mask, including our straight friends and family, nobody knows who's an addict, and it's a cool thing. I'm, I'm just excited about it. Oh, that's the, like, anonymous mask. Yes, the Guy Fox mask. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Dopey Day, July 24th. Even Ray's going to do it. You're going to do it, Ray? I'll do it. Yeah, sure. Excellent. Um, remind me. Remind me because I'll forget. I'm, I'm going to remind you every fucking day. I talk to you every <laughs> fucking morning. Of course I'll remind you. Um, now, I want to tell this story on the show. And um, I thought it was really funny. Basically, if you guys remember, there's a dude. I told some of this story on the show before. There's this dude in my town who's kind of like crazy and he's kind of like an alcoholic and possibly an addict and he kind of bikes around town and he's like a black dude or a Spanish dude and there's not a lot of black and Spanish people in my town. So when I would see him, he would say hi to me and I thought like I was cool because I was like, yo, what's going on, man? And uh, But then it turned out he was a crazy alcoholic who talked to everybody and still I was like, what's going on, man? And then if you remember the story... Linda took Nora to the supermarket, and while Linda was at the deli counter, she was buying coal cuts, and Nora sat down on the rolls, and this dude in the store started yelling at her, and Nora lost her mind, got super afraid, and every time we would wander around the town, when she'd see him, she'd be like, that's the guy, daddy, and I would get very upset, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. So so this dude, and he, I would see him, and he'd be like, what's going on? And I couldn't even get myself to say hello to him. You know what I'm saying? Because you fucked, were still mad. Yeah, he terrorized Nora, you know? Yeah. And, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to fight him, this crazy alcoholic in the street who'd probably beat my ass. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to fight him, uh, but I had this resentment against him. So I'm just I'm surprised you have street people in your fancy town. Yeah, I know. There's him. Then there's this guy called Bo Dean, who's a very famous street person in this town. And then you there's have famous street people in your town. Then there's Bo Dean's buddy, Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> and Bo Dean and Clyde drink, but they won't drink with this guy. I don't know if it's because they're racist or this guy's crazier than them. Bo Dean and Clyde, I just picture them like smoking joints and listening to Led Zeppelin in tank tops. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're those yeah. kind of like Suffolk <laughs> County alcoholics. Anyway, so this dude, I'm walking with the baby, and this dude, I don't even know his name. It's not Bodine, and it's not Clyde. And another side note is that Clyde is such a – Bodine and Clyde are such regulars in the town that if you talk to anybody in the town, they know him. Linda's father, years ago, when he would take out his recycling, would save his bag of cans for Clyde. So when Clyde came around, he'd be like, here's the, here's the cans, Clyde. <laughs> so like these guys – How old is Clyde? Clyde is probably like in his late fifties. 
And uh, and Bo Dean is is probably in his late fifties as well. This guy is probably in his early fifties. Anyway, so I'm walking with the baby, right? And I'm bored yeah. out of my fucking mind. You know, I take walks because I, I can't sit in the house with the baby. And yeah. he comes over to me and he's like, "What's going on, man?" And I'm like, "This fucking guy." But it was right after the Black Lives Matter thing. And I was like, oh, this guy is black. I need to be nice to him. I need to show solidarity in the wake of, of this terrible moment in American history. So I'm like, how you doing, man? And he goes, I feel like crying. I said, I know what you mean, man. And I go, I go, yeah, it's a crazy time. He goes, it is a crazy time. Lots of babies being born. I said, what do you mean? He said, he said well, check this out. I was walking by the high school and I looked under the bleachers and I see two kids going at it. Fucking. I mean, really going at it. I was like, what? He goes, you got to go check it out. And I was and I was like thinking to myself, I'm too good to go check out these teenagers fucking. I'm with my baby, for Christ's sake. I'm going to keep walking and mind my own business. And he says, you should go check it out. They's really going at it. And I was like, oh, uh, and I keep walking thinking, I'm, I said, I'm good. And I keep walking. And then I was like, fuck it. And I turn around with Susan <laughs> uh, and I was like, where's the high school again? And I just, I walk back to find the teenagers fucking because I was so bored and I was so ashamed. <laughs> Every step I take, I'm like, what if Susan sees them fucking? What is them going at it going to look like? Like, what am I going to see? You know? So I get yeah. I get to the football field in the bleachers and there was nobody there. Nothing. Do you think that makes me a disgusting perv? No, of course. I, I, anybody would go look. I also feel like I need to apologize for my racist impression of this guy. But that's kind of the way he talked, just so you know. Well, you do that voice for like a bunch of people. Who else do I do it for? Anytime you do like a character, that's the voice you use. Hey, go look over there. <laughs> That's my voice? That's my character voice? Okay. You, you use that voice for everybody. All right. Well, good. Good deal. Um, so that's my story. In boredom, I went to go look at two teenagers fucking uh, with my baby, and thank God we didn't find them. What do you think of the story, she, Ray? She, she could have been traumatized for life. Traumatized for life, right? <laughs> and check this out. We went to Starbucks this morning. Um, yeah. And we didn't call you the line. The drive through line at Starbucks was so long. We went to McDonald's instead. Oh, McDonald's is good. McDonald's it wasn't coffee. good. The coffee wasn't good. Oh, no. But you know who loved it was Linda's dad. Oh, oh really? He and liked McDonald's coffee. He loved the McDonald's coffee. And you know what Susan loved so much? The chocolate shake? No, the fucking hash brown. Holy oh, cow. man. Yeah, the hash browns are so good. If I was a young person, I would say those hash browns are fire. That's some fire I, hash browns. I used to eat McDonald's every morning. And now, and now you eat Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah, no, not every morning. I've never had Taco Bell breakfast, but I'm going to get that with the gift card. You're going to get breakfast with the gift card? Well, I'm going to get breakfast and then more. Let's give a quick shout out to Matthew. Uh, in the Dopey Nation for sending out the Dopey decals for everyone who joins Patreon and for giving Ray the gift card and the, oh, yeah. and the dick pic. 
No, he didn't. Oh, it wasn't him. Um, no. Now, one other thing, just just in case you guys didn't do this, if you can go on iTunes and subscribe to Dopey and leave a five star review, it would make Ray extremely happy, right, Ray? It would, yeah, that's my biggest dream in life. There you go. And now, one of my biggest dreams in life was to get our guest on the show. He is like a huge figure in American drug culture. Uh, are you excited to hear the interview, Ray? I already heard the interview. Are you excited? Yes, I'm for, excited. Are you excited for the Dopey Nation to hear the interview, yeah, Ray? I'm very excited for that. It's it's cool. It's wild. So on the phone, I have a legendary figure involved in drugs and smuggling, George Young. His life was uh, fictionalized in the movie Blow. How many people come up to you and say, uh, I love you in Blow? How often do you get that? Well, thank you for bringing me on this morning. It's, I appreciate it, dude. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'm a little bit like I'm in, I'm a little awestruck by you because uh, your legend is is very big. So thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. You don't have to be awestruck. I was just a kid from Weymouth High School. That's all. <laughs> I hear you. Um, when you were a kid, did you ever ever foresee the life that was in front of you? Like, was was there ever foreshadowing to becoming um, this figure in American history? Because you actually are a figure in American history. So my generation came together, and, and we, of course, we stopped the war. We got rid of Johnson as president, and, and you know. Yep. And we introduced drugs on the scene and, and all the girls wearing their bras and whatever. And, and so it was time to get the hell out of Weymouth because I was attending the University of Tennessee at that time. And before that, I played football at the University of Southern Mississippi. And I got hurt. But when I first went down there in the 60s, it was the racism was insane. Right. What, what, I mean, what you're talking about, though, is like that your generation was the biggest dreaming generation, but it was disillusioned by all that violence and corruption. So you had the most wide eyed people that all of a sudden had to face the facts that that wasn't how it was going to be, is what you're saying. Right. It was a great, great renaissance. I mean, you know, the music, the literature. The movies and you know, and the protesting and and it was a magnificent generation. Got, some people got lost in it, you know, through drugs or whatever, and other people more or less just went back to you know becoming novel and and working for their dads or whatever or. You know, they were all mostly college graduates. and But I went to California, and when I first got out there, I couldn't believe it. Right. I mean, it was like it was like somebody gave me the keys to, you know, the Sultan's jewel box. It was, I never saw a girl in a bikini before, except in a movie or whatever. But, you know, and, and California was, it was all happening, the whole movement. Do you remember? Do you remember the first time you got high uh, on anything? Yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I do. We were 
my friend Tuner and I were looking for a beach apartment out there, and it was signs. It wasn't like it is today. There were signs for rent, for rent, for rent. And we stopped at this one place, and it was right on the beach, on Manhattan Beach. And there were girls up in the balcony in their bikinis smoking dope. And I didn't smoke. I didn't even smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and so they yelled at me. They said, you guys going to rent? And I said, yeah. And they said, what's your name, George? And I, I, they said, where are you from? And I wasn't going to tell Wayne that nobody knew what the hell that was. So I said, Boston. And so one of them said, Boston George, come on up. <laughs> that took about three minutes. And he had smoked this. <laughs> and I couldn't even inhale. They had to make me a water pipe. <laughs> right. What year, what year was that, George? I was like in 1963. Right. So it was right right when the whole country was turning on to weed and pot culture and and things were changing. Things were like when you you always quote Bob Dylan and that's that's when Bob Dylan started to get a little bit psychedelicized. You you were on the same kind of path as him. Um and the country was going, right? Um it must have been very exciting. It must have been an incredible time to live in. It was it was it was probably the greatest time of my life. And of course then I looked around you know, California was full of Porsche convertibles and robberies and everybody had money and and I realized one thing, you needed money to live there. And and so I written rolled in Long Beach Day to finished getting my degree and then I found out about the price of pot and uh, and I thought this is a business and my friend was attending UMass and he was in uh, in restaurant management and he part of the course was he was sent off to San Francisco to working at Mark Hopkins for the summer and he stopped by on his way back to school and I had a big punch bowl full of pot in the living room and he said Jesus, he said how much is that? And I said you know, it's like $60 a kilo like, yeah, it's everywhere and he, and he said, do you know how much stuff costs? And Massachusetts, I said, no, tell me, Frank. And that's all it took. It was three times more money, maybe four times. And we conceived the idea, like, let's buy it here and take it there. Right. You know, buy it for a nickel, sell it for a quarter, whatever. Um, and, 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 and that's when a lot of, I think, dreams come together. Your dream of being rich, your dream of being on an adventure, and, um, and your dream of... Uh, of doing what you want. It all kind of coalesced into one dream, right? Right. It all came down to total free will. Right. And the more money you had, you know, the more free will you could have. Let me ask you this just right off the bat. Uh, I probably saw Blow, you know, 
20 times or something. You know, I'm a drug addict. I'm 45 years old. I'm going to be 46 this week. And, uh, and that movie made a big impact on me. How accurate do you, how, when you watch that movie, have you watched it? I watched it once. And, and were you like, how accurate did you, did you find it? Or was it annoying? Like, what was your experience watching it? No, it was because of Johnny Depp. It was complete and the director Ted Demi sure it was like 95% accurate and and you know Johnny and I talked about it and we wanted to send a message to the movie <laughs> about the highs and the lows and and the consequences and a lot of people that watch the movie you know I've got the wrong idea and they didn't get the message, but not everybody gets the message. What and the message? The message is how dangerous the stuff can be, and the consequences of playing with something that's dangerous, right? Correct. And um, do you consider yourself a drug addict, George? No. Okay. I like to drink. I'm probably a goddamn alcoholic. <laughs> that was the that was the first thing I called up George and I said, "How are you?" And he said, "It's pretty good. I'm on Cape Cod and I got a Bloody Mary and I'm about to smoke a cigarette and a joint." And I was like, "All right, I guess you're not sober, um, but that's okay. You know what I mean? Like I, this show is not about judgment. And and what and what George? What did you say when I said, "I guess you're not sober then?" Well. I just thought, I mean, the guy that I'm looking at, he's an ex-drug addict, and it seems everybody's an ex-drug addict, <laughs> or, a, or a drug addict happening to waiting to be an ex-drug addict. Yeah, yeah, a, pot- a potential ex-drug addict. Right, but in the 60s, it was different. I mean, the opioids weren't there, and but they did have... Black Beauties, which was sure speed. speed, and and Reds for Downers, and every housewife in suburbia all over the United States were eating them like candy for Christ's sake, you know. Mother's you little know. helper, yeah, right. You know, they made a movie even called it Valley of the Dolls. Sure, and and of course I lived with. Airline stewardesses out in Manhattan Beach, and they all had bags in them. <laughs> you know, a black beauty to fly and a red, a red to sleep. And, did you and, did you take a lot of pills in the sixties? No, I. I mean, I really didn't crave drugs, but there's one drug that I really loved was LSD. Okay, and. You know, at first you have a great religious experience. You see God, this and that. And, and then I found out something else about it, that having sex on LSD was like the 4th of July magnified <laughs> a thousand times over. And of course, I fell in love with it. What was the first, do you remember your first trip on LSD? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Talk to me. It was... Up in Lake Tahoe. And, you know, and I was with a beautiful girl, and and it was it was magnificent. 
<laughs> I love that. Um, and, uh, you know, I took acid a lot. I, I don't remember too much sex on acid, though, so I think I might have missed out. I think I, I might have had sex, like, once on acid, and I don't think it was... I don't think... I, I think something went wrong for me when I had sex on acid, but that's that's my own burden. I didn't get to live in the 60s. You know, I came of age in the 90s. It was a much different time. Um, but... When did, uh, obviously, the weed venture blew up and you became this ridiculously gigantic uh, pot smuggler. Um, you went to Mexico to find the source. Um, the thing that I find so amazing is that you didn't know how to fly a plane. You didn't have a plan. How did that all come together? It, it was all like the moment happenstance. You know, an idea would come in my head, and I'd just go and, and carry it out. You know, it was like, I equate it to, like, riding Bronx in a rodeo, you know, and you get out of the bad bull and, and get thrown off, and then you keep getting back on that son of a bitch until you go own it. And, and I was just a... Uh, half Irish and half Dutch and a stubborn son of a bitch and I kept getting back on. I mean, the movie doesn't put in all the failures. You know, there's more success to say than failures. And, and, but there were a lot of them. And, but I kept overcoming them. And what it was is that my whole idea was to get a million dollars in the beginning. And, you know, buy a giant motorcycler and take off the heat like, you know, Jack London did and and just be free. Yeah. And then I then I found out something about myself is that I was a thrill junkie. And the more thrill I could have, the greater high and there's no high like that thrill if you're a thrill junkie. You know, it's like a gambler. The money is only a tool to play the game at the casino. And that's his high. And my high was the thrill. And what? even to the last... Like, like what you could get away with, basically, like it, like pulling it off. Like, what could you tell us that first time that uh, you're in Mexico and you you find a way to get all the all of the bud or all of the weed out of Mexico? Like, how did you put it together? Like that you were going to get a plane? Like, what was? Could you tell us that story? Well, I knew that you know flying up above the border was far superior to sneaking through it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and actually, there was no drug enforcement agency until 1974. And you could fly back and forth all day, all night, across the border. And, you know, hardly anybody knew all this. And I found out, because some people say there's a woman to blame and she was an older woman and I she lived in Big Sur and the, the gate in the front of their house said undertow and if you 
slept with Erica, you realize how much meaning of that was. <laughs> and she, I told her my plans and whatever, and she said, come on, I'm taking to meet my ex-husband. And he lived up in Sonoma, and he was a pilot. And he looked at me and he said, say you're Erica's new boy toy. He said, what do you want? I said, I want to learn to fly. And he said, you got a damn smuggler, right? I said, yeah. And he said, come on, let's go. And he took me down to, from Sonoma. We flew down to Mexicali, back and forth across the border half a dozen times in broad daylight. And, and he took me out to my 29 pounds by Palm Springs, and the dry lake beds out there. He touched down, he picked up again, he's just where you land, that's where you going. He said, he looked at me and I said, he said, you got it? And I said, yeah, I got it. And he said, I just gave you the keys to the Sultan's Jewel Blocks, kid. Right. And, and and at that moment, did you see the potential? Like the potential? I mean, again, you said you were a thrill junkie. So were you seeing the potential fortune of be, like the Jack London model of being free? Or were you seeing the Sultan's jewel box of uh, infinite risk and infinite high from the infinite adventure? Which was more appealing? I would a combination of both. Right. <laughs> totally. And and then you know, everything in my life has happened by happenstance. And I used to question it. And I mean, you know, why should you plan your life when your destiny is already long ago, eons ago, written out for you and I equate life to being at a train station. Some people stand on a platform. Their train comes by. They don't know it, so they don't get on. Right. Other people, other people know it, and they're afraid to get on. And then there's a minute few who know it's their train, and they get on that son of a bitch and ride it. Right. And so it's a great journey. It was a wonderful trip. It's so crazy to think about because for you, every little millimeter of connection exploded into uh, reality. You know what I mean? Like you did one thing and it was successful or even if you failed like you got busted and you wound up in jail when you met Carlos Leader right um, and, and that was basically happenstance that brought you that that kind of crystallized this legend but this legend also became a, a big burden I mean that's the same happenstance right meeting him in prison it's like incredible that because and that line of us how the any Hispanics in federal prison. <laughs> and they put me with this guy, and and then it all just exploded. And I mean, it was, and it was meant to be. It's like John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah, 
Simon and Garfunkel. Right? Meeting in an elevator. It was like that, right? Isn't it kind of like that? Yes. Can you tell us tell us about that a little bit? Uh, I call it destiny. And, you know, and it's inexplicable because your destiny, it's already written out for you. And if you know it, just let it happen and and you go with it and it takes total free will to do that and you make a lot of sacrifices too with it with your family in your home and mine and as my father said to me one time he said he said you think you're a man he said you're not what are you talking about he said let me tell you something he said there were times when I didn't want to come home to you and your sister and your mother at night. He said, but I did. He said, well, you don't care about home. You just don't. Your home is in your head. And he said, you just do what you want when you goddamn want. What do you think about that? It's true. Completely true. Well, again, yeah. it, it's along those same lines of, I mean, of a great artist, you know, the great artist lives for the art, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, you can, I mean, it's stupid, but like John Lennon, you know, basically abandoned his first son for the Beatles. He abandoned his family for the Beatles for his work, you know, and, and, and I mean, that's what I'm hearing from you. You were obsessed with the adventure and I'm not saying it's right, but that's what happened, right? You know, who's the... Judge which is right and what which is wrong. I mean, there we go. You know, when one third of the children in the world are starving to death and poverty and pestilence and disease, it's like, and people are driving Ferraris here and they don't give a shit. And one third of the world with children are starving to death. I think anybody cares who should say what's right. But do you feel, when you tell that story about your father questioning your manhood, did you feel the regret then? Do you feel it now? I mean, I've read that you didn't have any regret, but when you tell me that story and you say your dad was right, it's like, how does that hit you now? You can't live. Only a fool lives with regret. I mean... You can't change the past. You know, you can only change now. Okay? The moment. Right. And, and allow it your destiny to carry you forth. And no, I don't have any regrets. All right. Because that's a foolish waste of time. There you go. And, and so I, I spent 20 years in prison and... And still, I didn't have any regrets. And how the movie Blow came out, as I sat down one day, I decided to write my life story. And it was called Grazing in the Grass Until the Snow Came. And then it became a book. And, and then they wanted to change the name to Blow. Because I said nobody would understand raising in the grass until the snow came, and and then I'm in prison, and Ted Demi 
Johnny Depp show up and whatever, and they want to make a movie. And which is all irony in itself. It's like, I mean, there were a lot of smugglers beside of me, and all of a sudden I, I get out of jail and I'm famous. Right. <laughs> you know, being famous for five minutes is great. After that, it's all downhill. <laughs> right. After the first five minutes, everybody just wants to know about Pablo Escobar. Yeah, ladder. And, you know, I spent, it's really ironic because I spent my whole life not wanting anybody to know who I was. Right. Because the greatest outlaws or criminals or whatever are the ones that know it. nobody knows who they are. And once you become famous, you know, you're on the hit list. Did that bother you then? Like that you were this amazing outlaw who became famous. Was that was that hard to live with? I, I just accepted it as, as a destiny part of it. I mean, how many people does that happen to? Not many. I want to ask you something else. Uh, when you first became uh, in touch with cocaine, uh, did you hear about the money? Or, like, when was the first time you actually did the coke? Well, the first time I actually did it was not meaning Pablo or none of that. It was just a business to me. Um, then, of course, I tried it, and I liked it. You know, it was pure coke, and it was, it was great. You could stay up for weeks at a time and, and drink your ass off and never get drunk, and it just, like, it was like jet fuel. Right. And, but then I realized that, you know, too much of something you love will destroy you. I, I gave it up. <laughs> when did you give it up? Probably in the early 80s. And when did you, let me ask you this though, when did you try it? Did you try it after you were making millions or had you, did you try it before you ever started flying it? No, I tried it afterwards. You were like, I want to see what this is all about if so, so many people want it? Right. I mean, we were testing it and it was pure. And the cocaine today is covered, God knows what. It's not even cocaine, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, pure cocaine is a magnificent drug. Like, but anything else is like, you have to do it in moderation. Well, well, lots of people can't, you know what I mean? I mean, a lot of the people that listen to this show, you know, I I don't think I ever had any cocaine that was close to pure. I think all the coke I ever did was, was had every drug in the rainbow in it and it didn't suit me. Um, But I don't think I ever had the good stuff. I don't think I ever had the Merck, the Elvis Presley pink powder coke or whatever. What was up with the pink powder coke? Why did it become pink for him? Because it was, it was, Peruvian, okay? And that the coke, it's pink. It's like when 
the moonlight shining on it, on the snow. Damn good. I think you, you. I think you missed your calling as a poet. You, 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 you so many beautiful phrases, grazing in the grass until the snow came and the moonlight. It's just such beautiful stuff. I mean, obviously you're you're a fan of poetry and and rock and roll lyrics. Do you ever try to write poetry, George? Yeah, I've written a a whole book of poetry. Uh, what an idiot I am. What's it called? It's called Blow by Blow. Nice. Um, you can probably get it online. Let me ask you this. Um, what would, I mean, like, I just need to ask this because if I didn't, I would regret it. When, when the business is multiplying and multiplying and, you know, like, I can't even imagine what it's like to make millions of dollars a week and all these flights. It's like, what, what's going on in your head at that point? It was the cocaine. I used it as energy to to, to fill everybody's goddamn demands, and you know, like sometimes I would want three planes in one week, or this and that, and like you know, and you're dealing with you know many factions, and you know, and there, of course, money brings. And drugs bring evil too. Okay, and you know most people that I dealt with, everybody had guns, <laughs> and it was a violent world. How scary was was that? Like, I mean, when when you can make hundreds of millions of dollars a week, and who knows how much money Pablo Escobar is making, everything changes. It isn't about the poetry or the fun. It's about what you're saying. It's about the mind bending greed, and and no lives matter at that point. How scary was it for you as a thrill junkie to be in the middle of of the most cat, you know scary cat and mouse game in, in the universe? First, when I started this whole thing, you know, even going in, up in the mountains of Mexico, you know, with the people that ran the pot down in Mexico, I was afraid. Okay? And then one day, I stopped and see my dad all the time. And he looked at my eyes and he said, I've lost you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you're not afraid anymore, Bill. Wow. And I need to stop being afraid. I, I mean, I wasn't afraid, but when all that violence and madness started to happen out of Colombia, you know, blowing up airplanes with people in it and, and this and that, and, My, in my nature to, to be involved in that. I mean, you know, it was a long way from Jack London and sailing a snack to Tahiti. Absolutely. And, it's amazing because we start the story with the earnestness of the generation that gets disillusioned by these murders and corruption, and and then we 
we transport to the to the beauty of the adventure of of drug taking and music listening and free love and free choice and poetry and then that gets disillusioned by the greed and the craziness of drugs it's crazy right money if you want to play the money game there's a lot of evil involved in it okay and that's the way it is so what I'm what I'm hearing from that is like like you have drug addicts, you know what I mean? Like if if money wasn't a consequence, being a drug addict wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Is basically what I'm hearing. Well, I mean, people that have drug problems have a genetic makeup. Okay, so addictive. Um, I mean, I. I guess you could say I'm addicted to alcohol, and I can understand that, but I've never been addicted to drugs. I mean, I, you could fill this, this whole room with drugs, and I wouldn't care. It would, it would be of no consequence to me. And, you know, one time I snorted heroin, and it was horrible. But it's part and parcel to the same story of the cartel and the murders and the terrorism and the, you know, it's all somebody wanting to profit off somebody else's pain. You know, it's all the same thing, right? That's true. It's bad. So, like, Um, when you went from everything uh, to prison, like, you know, you had all the money in the world and then you find yourself locked up. Um what was that like psychologically for you? It was like I knew it was going to happen. Okay? I just knew. And I and it, what I knew was going to happen it happened. And I kept going until it did happen. And I played out the cards. Right. And now I'm old and weary as hell. (laughs) And all I've got is a story to tell. (laughs) I appreciate your story. Um, You talk about uh, moments with Pablo Escobar as being like millennia because of his intensity. 
Um, what was it? What was his intent? How do you describe that intensity? Like, what was what was the deal over there? A lot of people don't even know that <laughs> Pablo's mother in Medellin was a school teacher, and they didn't make any money, and he had to steal hubcaps to help feed the family because 90% of, of the land in Colombia is owned by his Castilians, okay? The Spanish. And they run everything down there. Right. And he, he was an Indian, indigenous. And of course, you know, we all love to do the Indians. Mm-hmm. Take a ride out the Southwest. Or we did the American Indians or these Indians or whatever. And like... It's fucking insane. Yeah. Insane. And it drove him insane. And the money in the power, he became a senator down there. But they laughed at him. And I told him, get the fuck, take this money and get out of here, man. You're rich. You can go anywhere you want. He looked at me and he said, I will die here, George. You will die here. And I just... Walked away. I couldn't. I didn't know what to say anymore. Well, but mm-hmm. s- someone could have said the same thing to you. Take you're rich. Take the money and go away and be free. And 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 you basically said the same thing, right? Correct. So basically, we were one and the same. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. But, but then there's the other question: What the hell is freedom? Okay. Tell me. When, when, and, and when you ponder that, what do you come up with? It's just the word for nothing left to lose. Oh, you're going to quote fucking Chris Christopherson at me now? <laughs> you know what? Pretty smart guy. Oh, yeah. Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Let me ask you, 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 you ran into a lot of incredible personalities, artists, leaders, you know, these people. I know that you, uh, you spent a bunch of time with Richard Pryor. Uh, how do you equate, like, when you spend time with Pablo Escobar and then you spend time with Richard Pryor, like, how do you equate those kinds of legendary personalities? Richard Pryor was a genius, all right? genius and I loved him with all my heart and soul and yeah it's like he was a gift on the planet and had nothing to do with being an outlaw he was just a great great man man that had inside of the human nature and could make people laugh the greatest gift of all and and he gave it a thousand percent of himself and God bless him and Pablo and I Pablo was hung up on this power trip and trying to be accepted by Colombian society and it was never going to happen. As far as George, he was just a goddamn kid from Williams, Massachusetts. 
didn't want to go home again because nobody ever lived there anyway. And now you're in Massachusetts. Yeah. You made it. Ironic. It's ironic, isn't it? Well, how's your life? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, I'm falling apart physically, but that's part of it. Too many Bloody Marys, George. You could still get sober if you want to. Yeah. I'm... Ask Johnny Depp to shoot me out of a cannon like he did Hunter Thompson. <laughs> did he shoot Hunter Thompson out of the cannon? Yeah. Did you ever meet Hunter Thompson? Yes, many times over. What was that like? Where was that at? He was a maniac in the 60s. <laughs> you know, in, in the 60s, it was easy to meet, you know, all these people because they were just wandering around San, San Francisco and L.A. And, like, it wasn't like you had to pay $500 for a ticket to go see you know, some rock and roll star or whatever. For Christ's sake, they'd be playing in the park in San Francisco for free. Right. <laughs> did you ever? And, did you ever? Uh, did you ever meet Jerry Garcia? Yeah, and <laughs> he was my friend of mine, and and it's really ironic because I did, you know, a marijuana show. I did a lot of them out in California. And I knew his daughter, Trixie, when she was only like six years old. And she came up to me at the marijuana show and introduced herself. And, you know, it's like wonderful. Because you had known her when she was a kid. Yeah. And Jerry, Jerry loved the pure Coke. Was was he ever after you to get in the pure Coke? Was that a thing, or were you just you just knew him and you loved his music? Well, that's how we met. But I love the music too. Me too. And I mean, a lot of people don't even realize that they play fucking classical jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Those riffs they go on. They're all geniuses at home, man. And uh, Osley Stanley III, he was the sound manager for them. Sure. And Osley and I used to get acid, pure acid, in Sandow, Switzerland, and, and bring it and sell it for a dollar a hit. And they make a million hits out of a kilo, and it was legal. So wait a second, hold on. You knew Owsley, you would go to Switzerland and get that get the Sandows and bring it back to California and sell it. Is that what you're saying? Right. Oh my God. Um, what about that story? You know the Paul McCartney story where he's going to do Monterey and he brings the film equipment with all the acid and the camera lenses? I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, it's like, it's well, the story was he wanted a ton of Owsley acid. And I don't know if it's a true story. I'm just a fucking idiot who read it in a book. But he goes to shoot, he, he sends a film crew to Monterey to shoot the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. And, they, and Owsley loads up all of uh, Paul's 
he didn't even want to shoot the festival. He just wanted to smuggle the acid back to England. So they load up all the gear with the with the acid, and that's how he got they got all the Bowsley Purple Haze back in England. That was the story. So you you never heard that story. I just told you a drug smuggling story. Well, there's another story I never knew, but thank you. <laughs> what was Owsley like? Was he? A re- I heard that he made the dead just eat red meat in L.A. and he was crazy. Was he cool? Was he nuts? What was he like? He's a fucking genius from a super wealthy family. Okay. He was a nuts. Maybe we were all nuts. Yeah. I mean, how do you determine who's a nut who is a <laughs> Absolutely. And the Beatles' music changed because of, you know, the the coke and the and the, and the LSD. I mean, um, you know, they went from you know the Ed Sullivan show, and the music became radical and and beautiful and. It's like drugs can be a good thing or they can be a bad thing. Too much of a good thing isn't a good thing. Like a little, like you said, if you could use fucking pure coke responsibly, you're not going to be, you know, tore up. I mean, I, I never knew a way to use drugs responsibly. It wasn't going to happen for me. Um, let me ask you this: I know you're a crazy Dylan fan. Did you ever meet Dylan on your travels? You know what's really ironic is that. <laughs> that I never met him, but I used to go watch him all the time. And I was in Newport in '63, the folk festival. Where he, yeah, where he blew everybody's mind and went electric. Yeah, with the band. Yeah, with Mike Bloomfield in the band, right? Mike Bloomfield, Mel Cooper. Yeah, Boy. <laughs> two of the greatest fucking guitar players in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and then a hundred years later, I'm in prison, and the counselor loved fucking believe it or not, Twenty One Jump Street, Johnny Depp. So Johnny, they they would call him, and then he'd tell me I had to go on the payphone to call them. So. I called, and the director, Ted Demi, answered the phone, and he said, you won't believe this fucking standing right here in fucking front of me right fucking now, and I said, oh, who, Ted? And he said, Bob Dylan. Hmm. We just showed him the movie, and, you know, I've been waiting a thousand years to talk to this guy. Yeah. And I said, well, put him on. I said, did you watch the movie? And he said, yeah, man. And he said, I said, you know what, Bob? I said, everything I did because it's because of you. (laughs) He said, fuck, I hope that don't get out. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's crazy. And then then what happened? That was it? 
That was it. Oh my God. That must have been the craziest thing for you. Right? You've waited your whole life to meet this guy. You quote you quote him in the movie. You quote him in just about everything I've ever seen you in. And uh, and then he's watching the movie of your life and you and you attribute it all to him. That's so funny. That's so funny. Oh my God. George, I can't tell you what an honor it's been to uh, have you on the phone with me. Um I mean, another thing that I just want to throw out there is is supposedly, you know, Coke exploded based on your... Do you think Coke would have exploded with or without you and you were just in the right place at the right time? Because the, the claim is that you were responsible for 85% of the Coke tra- uh, traffic to the United States uh, during the 70s and the 80s. It would have gotten here otherwise, or, or do you think that you were the... Uh, it was It was just because you had the vision. I didn't know if I could sell it out in L.A. If Richard could sell it, and like he didn't know, and Richard, we took it, we took it Hollywood, and you know, and then it exploded. Hollywood made films about it. You know, the music industry made songs about it, and had the greatest advertising agency in the world promoting it. Goddamn cocaine. Right. And, you know, and who's, who's to really have the answer to that? The gods of destiny or the gods of chaos? Right. They chose oh. you. They chose you to do it either way. Right. It's amazing. Um, thank you, George. I, I cannot thank you enough, and it, it's been a total pleasure to talk to you a little bit. It's been a great interview. I've done some horrible ones with you're great. Oh, that's nice of you to say. Um, listen, uh, I would love to meet you sometime. I'm I'm in Long Island. Maybe I'll meet you sometime in Massachusetts one day. Long Island's right up the road, kid. Montau. All right, man. Uh, hopefully, I'll meet you one day. Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank uh, Tim Ryan and Jennifer. They do great work. Yeah. And help with helping people. I mean, they're wonderful. And you should you should let them take you to a meeting. <laughs> well, I don't do well at meetings. I, yeah, I can imagine. Have they tried? Have they tried to twelve step you? Nobody's done twelve. So I take thirteen steps. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I hear you. No, Tim Jennifer was amazing on the show, and Tim is going to come on the show. His story seems like it's very heavy, right? It's extra heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right, George. I, I, I um, one thing that I, I, I it's going to be a, a weird diversion, but like in the movie, right? The, the the crux of you getting well or getting out of it was was to be with your daughter and like from what i've read like that didn't work out um how much does that bother you at first it did and then a wise person told me she's putting a guilt trip on you and taking everything you got and then the guilt trip's over now and I can't change what happened and I did the best I could for her goddamn bought her a house and napper and car and put her in college and, and nobody's perfect no 
It's easy to pass the dice your parents, but majority of the time, they're trying to do the best they can for you. Right. And, and what happened is that she turned out to be just like her mother, and like, and God, we don't want to go on our road. Well, but she's not perfect either, and maybe she can come back. Maybe she can have a revelation, and maybe that story is not done. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe she can she can have a revelation, and you guys can uh, find some peace in the end. I, you know, I just because you, you fucked up, and, and and she suffered, and then she fucked up, and now you suffer. But maybe she's gonna get to have a revelation too. You know. both look forward to that day okay yes sir um and thank you george i, I can't thank you enough it, it's been a total pleasure for me you're just in time kid because they're gonna make another bloody murder right now enjoy it smoke a cigarette for me man i miss fucking smoking jesus christ well smoke a camel god damn it <laughs> all right man have a good day okay thank you again okay adios take care so, I mean, and that dude is a fucking classic character, and I'm on, I always wanted him on Dopey. So the fact that he came on and he shared some serious fucking Dopey business, it blew my mind. Ray, what did you think? Um, I, I thought it was great. I thought the interview was great and the movie was great. I, I'd never seen that. And I was, like, amazed at his what balls this man had. And then he kind of explained it like later that he was a thrill junkie. That was his biggest drug to like get, steal a plane and then fly to Pablo Escobar and then like hold a gun to somebody's head. And, you know, it's just like, how do you, how do you not, not get scared during that? But that was his drug was like doing crazy stuff, stealing a plane. (laughs) I mean, Ray, but you, I mean, you can relate. You're a little bit of a thrill junkie yourself. He was a conduit. You know, he knew he knew that's what he the way he described the story. He was just the person that needed to do these things. And he was driven, you know, kind of in a way by the same things that you were driven by or that I was driven by, which was that spirit, that Dylan-esque spirit. He lived by the words of Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I liked when you, you would go like, did you ever meet Jerry Garcia? And he's like, yeah, every, you could throw any name at him. And he would go, oh, yeah, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> it's like anybody from the 60s. Well, I mean, he did supply America with all of the coke. And I just the, – the story that blew my mind was the Owsley story. I, like, just couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Going to Switzerland. So, I mean – and, you know, he invited me to stay. After I got off the phone with him, I called him back to thank him. And he lives in, a like, a guest house in uh, – Cape Cod, and they asked me if I wanted to go visit. And um, I was like, yeah, but I'd bring my two kids, and they're like, eh, forget it. You know, <laughs> the second they heard that I had kids, they weren't that excited for me to come visit. Who does he live with? I don't know, some dude. Some dude named David. Oh. So, um, I don't know. And of course... The thing I didn't understand, why would Owsley go to Sandoz and get acid when he knew how to make it? That didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. He made all the acid, if you read any of the yeah. books. But yeah. maybe he did it so that he knew exactly what that level of the pharmaceutical dose would be. So he had the model properly. Yeah, or maybe he went sense. there to get the recipe. Yeah, maybe he broke it down. I don't know. Re- reverse uh, chemistry. And it was, of course, uh, Jennifer Jimenez and Tim Ryan 
who connected me with George Young. So that's awesome. You know, whenever you get to play Dopey Connect the Dots and see, um, you know, like how things happen, it amazes me. I mean, that's people ask me all the time, how did I get this guy or that guy? A lot of it is uh, crazy perseverance. And once in a while, I'll just write somebody and they agree to come on. George Young came yeah. on through the two of them. Oh, nice. I, I liked also that his theory about life and how like there's, you know, there's a train that's going to come and you know, that's your train or like, you know, you're, you're just uh, filling out your, um, uh, um, the, your path that has already been decided for you and you, you, you're just uh, following along. I like that. Well, I think you live like that. I mean, the other day, Ray and I were talking, you and I were talking and uh, I think I was complaining about this or that. And, uh, and I was saying how you don't, complain much do you remember that yeah and what did you say ray i i don't know you said oh, i said oh i said my life i have, no, I have nothing to complain about that well, when i was i asked dave like what when i was 15 my dream of like you know being an astronaut or whatever my dream was to move to new york have a some kind of cool job where I could like not work and not wear a suit and have a circle of artistic friends who would like do the, uh, do art together and live a bohemian life and live in a cool place. And all of that has come true. And so like very few people get exact, except I haven't like been successful in music, but then, friends of mine that are successful like the fun part was before we were successful so i've had everything i wanted when i was 15 has come true not to mention your music is played on the world's greatest addiction podcast yeah i mean i've had you know i toured europe several times you know i've had had some success uh, but very few people what they think they want to do with their adult life when they're 15 very few people get that not to mention you've had sex with every Mexican busboy in the 10 square block radius of your apartment. <laughs> a lot of them. I don't know if every one of them. This you know, something people don't think about with like uh, guys that work in restaurants or from Central America. Well, do you think, hold like, up, hold up. Do you think that when you were a kid and you were dreaming about New York City and you were dreaming about a career in music and you were dreaming about being creative and artistic and having a cool spot and you have a country home, do you think you were like, and I want to have sex with as many Central American kitchen staff as I possibly can. I want to be the king of, the, of fucking the kitchen staff. Uh, was that part of on the checklist? Because you've, you've actualized that. You know, it kind of was. I, when I was in seventh grade, I, there was a uh, uh, Latino guy, which was he was the only one at my school. I don't know where he was from. Um, and I had like a friendship with him and we were like hanging out. And I was so into him. And um, um, so maybe that was from that. I don't know. But a, a lot of these guys, the Mexican guys or Central American guys, if you think like they are the guy in town that did not want to get married and stay in the little town and they wanted to like move to New York and then they're sending money back home. But who would do that is like, it's disproportionately gay. Cause they are, I, in my investigations, like a lot of them are gay. Well, I'm sure when, when they were 15, they were like, all I want is to move to New York and suck a gay white guy's dick <laughs> after I cleaned the dishes in the restaurant that he eats. 
And then he's like, now I've got nothing to complain about because I'm doing that. And my village doesn't have to know that I'm sucking this gringo's cock who who often washes his clothes while he's wearing them. (laughs) I washed some clothes in the uh, bathtub yesterday. But not while you were wearing them. No. Ray, when's the last time you took a shower in your own clothes? Uh, uh, I don't know, October. And that was your thing back in the day. Yeah, but I also haven't washed any clothes for three months. I haven't done any laundry in any way in three months. So what are you doing, man? I'm wearing the same clothes every day. Dude, you got to go fuck. Aren't the laundromats open now? Yeah. No, they were open the whole time. This is what we call in the business as self-care. Well, you you know, my, my sponsor at a meeting said, like, one thing you have to remember to do, like, if you are clean shaven, get up every morning and shave your face. If you have a beard, like, trim your beard and make it look presentable and make your bed and all that stuff. And I, I thought, I've let my beard go crazy. So I trimmed it and I shaved my neck and uh, I made my bed. My hair is the longest it's ever been and I'm really enjoying it. You're never going to cut it. I don't. I mean, I don't want to. Linda wants me to cut it, you know, so I probably will cut it. Um, and I also like, you know, like we were talking about uh, about Zoom meetings and this morning, and, and Ray was saying how much he hated them, and uh, and I said why, and Ray said because he hated looking at himself on the screen, and I find that to be exactly the same thing. If I go to a Zoom, I mean, like when I look in the mirror, I'm like, I I always like thought homeless people look pretty good. They look like they don't give a fuck. They kind of look like they're hippies or beatniks. So when I look in the mirror, I'm like, I kind of look the way I like to look. But when I see myself on the screen up against people who are like trying to look well, I realize that I'm not looking well. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, I look so old. But uh, there was a man on the Zoom meeting who shared and his share was like, ranting against zoom meetings he was like this is not good this is not a meeting a meeting is talking beforehand shaking hands exchanging numbers and going for coffee afterwards that's the part of the meeting that is important and welcoming newcomers in person and to pretend that this is a viable alternative is wrong because it's it's missing the best parts of the meeting well it's i like, thought it was you thought was what? cool I, I i thought he was right on you know Nobody else would say that. I think it's great to say that, except that there are people that show up at Zoom for their first meeting and get clean. And like, and and this is all they can do. So to support them is probably a better thing to do than to say it's not a real meeting, you know? No, he talked about that too. He's like, there's going to be an entire generation of people that their first meeting was Zoom, and then they will eventually go to a real meeting. But he was just saying like the, the really important part is coffee and talking, not the meeting part. The coffee talk. The coffee talk. You know, I go to a meeting, I, I go to a meeting, and I've been going twice a week the last couple of weeks, but I usually go once a week, and, uh, and I usually get there while they're reading the preamble, and I leave as soon as the serenity prayer is done. Um, but my meeting on the beach has blown up. It's like the only in real life meeting, I think, on Long Island, and all the... Uh, the sober houses have found it. So you have all of these, you know, the sober kids go like, and they're all like have tattoo sleeves and they're vaping and like, you know, like, and then like, and they're like young guys and young, it used to be, I was the youngest guy at the meeting. I was the youngest and like most hip guy at the meeting. And now it's like filled with all of these like 
newcomer people who like look good and like are muscular and these hot girls and all this shit. And I'm like, that's terrible. I know. And, and it's like all of a sudden I'm old and decrepit at the meeting when I used to be the hot guy at the meeting. <laughs> you're you're going to have long hair. You're going to be like an old dead head with like hair and a ponytail, gray hair and a ponytail. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but we did get an amazing dopey voicemail. Did you listen to the dopey voicemail? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Wait, this is the the, the girl that slept over at the guy's place. This is the girl from Sweden. Um, this is the way you do a dopey voicemail, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Dave and Dopey Nation. I'm reaching out to you from Stockholm, Sweden. I started listening to the Dopey podcast about a year ago when I uh, realized I was a horrible, horrible addict and it has helped me through a lot of sleepless nights. So I want to share a Dopey story that happened about six years ago when I was 25 and I still back then had not realized that I was an addict. I was just having fun. And one of these uh, Fridays I was out drinking after, uh, after an after work and I felt super lonely. So I started to go on Tinder to find a date for that evening. And that was a period in my life that I kind of did the one night stand thing. Um, so I uh, hooked up with the first random person on Tinder and we agreed to meet up at a bar, which we did. And like maybe half an hour into the conversation, into the day, he told me that he is a psychologist, uh, trained therapist and works at a hospital and that he has like some own issues with some uh, mental or, or let me say severe mental illness or medium mental illness. Anyway, we get super drunk and um, in the after a few hours he asks me if I want to come home with him, which I happily say yes to because I'm very, very drunk. So we, uh, we grab a cab to his house and he lives on the first floor with a balcony and has these huge... Uh, bushes of flowers outside the balcony and uh, that was summertime and he used to he told me that he used to he slept on the balcony (laughs) during summers so he had like a mattress and pillows and everything outside on the balcony and that was also what what we did so um, I spent the night so this was Friday and it got pretty late, and I stayed, and then in the morning at 6 a.m., this guy wakes me up, and he goes, look, I have to go to work right now, so you have to leave. And I slept for just a few hours, so I was like, no, man, I cannot, I have to sleep. Can you, like, leave the keys, and I can go by your hospital and leave them later today. And he was like, no, no, you have to go. I said, no, I'm not going to go. I have to sleep. We need to solve this somehow. I cannot leave. Please let me stay. And he was like, no, you have to go. And I said, okay, look, so just lock the door and take the keys. And you live on the first floor. So I'll just sleep for a few hours more. And then I'll wake up and I'll grab my stuff and I would just 
jump out the balcony because it's the first floor. So just let me stay. I have to sleep. Weirdly enough, he did agree to that because he had to go to work. So he left, locked me in this apartment. And um, I woke up a few hours later and I was like, ooh, interesting. I'm in a stranger's apartment. So let's see what this guy owns, who he is. So I started going through his stuff, photos and like albums and diaries and (laughs) all the things you're not supposed to see. And when I got to the kitchen, I found his medical cabinet, a pharmacy. And like as an addict, I always go through people's pharmacies at home. I will always open like the bathroom pharmacy or the kitchen pharmacy and see if they have anything that could be of interest. So I opened this guy's medical cabinet or pharmacy or whatever in his kitchen. And it's just like 10 shelves of everything. So I start just ruffling through that and I find Oxycontin, I find Adderall, I find Benzos, (laughs) I find all these prescriptions for him and all these drugs and I'm like, I will take these. But I didn't know if we're going to see each other again, so I didn't want to take everything. So I took maybe 90% of the drugs and left just a little for him to still have. So I think I had like two packages of Oxycontin, 10 milligrams. I got like two packages of Adderall. I got two packages of Benzos. I got two packages of like uh, antihistamines or whatever to calm you down. And I just shovel everything down my purse all of the mats, I put my clothes on from yesterday, short dress, heels, and then I climbed over into the bushes from his balcony and jumped out on the other side. So this is Saturday morning, about 11 in the morning, and I'm just finding my way now to the metro and just meeting families on their morning walk. And I'm obviously doing this walk of shame. But I'm so happy because I have my bag filled with so many subscriptions. And I know that I'm going to get so high when I get home. And uh, shocker, we never talked to each other again. He never said anything um, about the meds. And he never wrote me back. But I'm pretty sure that he noticed. So that was one of my stories from back in the days. I am in recovery now. I'm not doing very good. But um, step by step, right? Thank you, Dave, for having the podcast and fucking toodles for Chris. Man, I love that story. Ray, what did you think of that story? Oh, that was that was crazy. And uh, she sounds like a really nice girl, but that was like just the worst thing to think of, like sleeping with somebody and then they won't leave your apartment. And then you're like, please leave my apartment and they won't leave. What do you do at that point? And then she steals all his drugs. <laughs> I know she is like the nightmare come true. She she stays. She won't go. And then she steals all the drugs. If it was me, I would not let her stay. I would just. I would not have let her stay. No, I mean, like, how there was something wrong with that guy that he couldn't kick her out. I mean, I would have been like, "You gotta go. 
You got to go now. I'm not leaving until you go, and I'm not leaving. So you got to fucking go. You know, how did he not kick her out? And then she steals all the drugs, and she does the walk of shame, but it's not a walk of shame because she has all the drugs. Yeah, and and she uh, and she also jumped off the balcony. I thought that maybe somebody was going to call the cops because like there's somebody jumping off the balcony. Well, I love that. I love that story. Um, and I want to do another dopey story, a dopey email. And Ray, I have accused you many times of reading terribly on the show. Do you want to try to read it well, or do you want me to read it? This first, I'll do this first one. No, 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 no. I want you to do the oh. last one, the Johnny oh, Socket one. Wait. No, it's not that long. It's a paragraph. Oh, I'm looking at, okay, I'm looking at the Dear Day, uh, Johnny Socket. Yeah. Oh, that's long. It's not that long, Ray. Okay. Dear Dave and Dopey Nation, Johnny Socket, the plug's plug. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Ray. Are you reading it now because you want to prove me wrong that you can actually read well? Yeah. All right, so do it and read it with some fucking feeling. And get just relax, take a deep breath, and read it with some emotion. What does the plug's plug mean? He All means right, he, sells, he sells drugs to the drug dealers. Oh, okay. Dear Dave and Dopey Nation, Johnny Socket, the plug's plug, here again with another dopey story. I was going to continue the theme of my last story with another psychosis story, but I felt like keeping it a little bit shorter this time. So once again, at the time of this story, I'm in my mother's apartment, which is where I was living at the time also. Around this time, I have a friend who would get thousands of Xanax bars, footballs, the circle ones that came in foil packs and other kind of Xanax you can think of sent to him from some vendor overseas for extremely cheap. So he would sell me large quantities of them for cheap so I could flip them myself for a profit. I remember, kind of, LOL, one night I decided to eat some myself and some more and probably some more, LOL. By the end of the night, when I decided it was time to turn in for the night and go to bed, I went into my room. Now, at this point, I'm confused because my mother and her boyfriend, the same boyfriend I waited two hours behind the couch to hit with a stick. Oh, man, I remember this guy. Yeah. We uh, were in there relaxing, watching TV. <laughs> they never go in my room. I proceeded to ask them to get out, not questioning why they're in my bed or in my room. After they refused to get out, I started to become irate and began shouting and then even arguing with them when, uh, when they told me that it was their room. I was getting to the point of possibly even getting physical with my mother's boyfriend since they wanted to play games with me and not get out of my room. My memory being pretty fuzzy from all the Xanax, I don't remember how the situation de-escalated itself, but it turns out they were actually in their own bedroom. <laughs> me just being so bartarded at the time, I didn't realize, and I was trying to go to bed in what I thought was my bedroom. Needless to say, my mother's boyfriend was pretty pissed over the, my shenanigans once again, and I feel felt pretty stupid the next day waking up in my own bed somehow. LOL. Stay strong, dopey nation. Toodles. Johnny Socket. P.S. I just I just got my dopey shirt a few days ago. I love it. Johnny Socket, right? He's like he's like a nightmare son. Well, he's, he's like a, night, a nightmare so stepson. Stepson, this poor stepdad. I love it. Oh, yeah. It's like, like a crouching, crouching crackhead, hitting, crouching, whatever it was. 
when he hits him with the stick. But I love this yeah. because it's like it's like a routine that he's just totally fucking up with his mom and his mom's boyfriend over and over and over again. You you think the boyfriend would be like, "I'm out of here until your son is gone. I'm out of here." Well, who knows, Johnny Socket? Let us know what happened with your mother and the boyfriend, and um, and Dopey Nation. If you have a story like Hillary's or Johnny Socket's, or her name wasn't Hillary, Karina or Johnny Socket, please send it in. This is some good stuff. Ray, you like these stories? Yeah, those are good. And Ray, I still still can't believe that guy did that twice to his uh, mom's boyfriend. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. Uh, And I love that Ray has revealed that he's had sex with that many Central American restaurant <laughs> workers uh, in the West Village and on 14th Street. So thank you for that, Ray. Um, we're going to call my dad now to have him re- read the Dopey Review of the Week. Uh, how was coming back on the show for you? How did it feel? It was fine. It's fine? fine? Not triumphant? It was, it was incredible. Was it everything you'd hoped it would be and it was more? Amazing! It was fucking amazing. Was it better than Caps? You'll done to do it again and again. <laughs> yes. All right, Ray. Um, I'll talk to you in the morning. Okay. Bye. Because I wanted to close the episode in a nice family fashion, I got my incredibly wealthy father uh, to break away from his croquet game upstate at his opulent estate. In northern New York, how are you feeling, Dad? I'm I'm feeling fine, but yes, you're really so full of baloney. There's no croquet court up here. There's nothing. There's a badminton court that's collapsed outside. Uh, this is not a palatial estate. I don't know what the heck you're talking about. Uh, you're creating a false impression for the dopey nation. Now, before totally before we move on, I want to ask you: Have you noticed? All of the new dopey tattoos in the dopey nation. Oh yeah, yeah, I have seen all those tattoos. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to say anything bad. I don't understand why people have tattoos, but yeah, it's amazing, and they're very they're proud of them, and everybody's proud that they have it. I mean, uh, you're, you're pr- I guess you're proud also for some reason. You know, I mean. I don't know. I I think there's a lot of tattoos out there, yes. I'll tell you this. I never liked a tattoo until I saw a dopey tattoo, and it it turned me around. Um, it was personal. Now it's personal. Yes. Yes. So, so Dopey Nation, I commend you for your tattoos and the the good so bad tattoo. I mean, that was beautiful. And this new Simpsons dopey tattoo, I have to say, uh, I commend you for that. Um, there's other news. July twenty fourth, Dad. Do you know what July twenty fourth is? Uh, is that the day to remember Chris? Is that the, is that what you're referring to? Yes, July twenty fourth is the day to remember Chris uh, and acknowledge addiction. It's going to be something like Dopey Day, but I don't think that's the best word. Maybe remembering Chris Day, or I don't know. We're going to come up with a better. Name. What, wouldn't it be Christmas? No, Christmas is Chris's birthday. Oh, it's not that same day then. All right. No, Chris didn't die on his birthday. Dad, did Jesus die on his birthday? I have no. I have no idea. No, um, no. I I don't know. You don't. I mean, you don't know I'm anything. Jewish. You don't know don't anything know. about Jesus. Anyway, Chris didn't no. die on his birthday. Chris died on July twenty fourth, and to commemorate uh, his tragic death. We're all going to put the Dopey logo over our eyes 
as a tribute to Chris, as solidarity to addicts in and out of uh, recovery and in and out of using uh, drugs. Uh, Dad, are you going to do it? Well, you know, I don't know how to do it, but you you always put the dopey thing over my face anyway, so I guess you could do that. That's, you know, that would be all right with me. So you're saying you will post you with the dopey logo on your face on Dopey Day? Uh, how do I do that? What do you mean, on Facebook? Yes. Or well, Twitter? You, you tell me what to do. Uh, if you tell me what to do, I'll do it, yes. Terrific. So, Dopey Nation, we need this to actually be something. So, let me know you're going to participate in Dopey Day. Send me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Send in voicemails. Send in emails. Go on iTunes. Hit subscribe on the Dopey Podcast. Leave a five star review and make it nice. Dad, you love the reviews, don't you? Oh, you, you had some great reviews this week. Yeah, they were really super. Would you it like? It was a really long one and some really nice ones. Do you want me to read the long one? Uh, if you want, I mean, I, don't, I mean, it's up to you. Yes, I think the long one is is very well written, and I think it does a nice job telling the story of Dopey. So I'm going to read it. But first, um, why don't you recount what you told me about this morning? What, I mean, about the document? Yeah, my dad is an old man. He's 76 years old. And, and a lot of the time, I think he's losing his mind. And a lot of the time, I think he's in danger of uh, losing his body. But today, he did something very impressive, Dad. Why don't you tell the story to the Dopey Nation? Well, all right. Well, it, it, it was yesterday, but you were making fun of my opulent kayak ramp last week. And I was explaining to the Dopey Nation that it was not an opulent kayak ramp. It was my dock that broke and submerged, and half of it or a third of it was in water. And therefore, you could get a kayak on and off. But the dock was useless being half submerged. So I fixed it. So, Dad, what did you do? How how did you fix it? I had had an old jack from an old car that I have in the house for 100 years, and I went out into the lake, and I was carrying cinder blocks, and I put the cinder blocks underneath the submerged dock, and I set up the jack, and I jacked up the dock and then stuck another two cinder blocks right under it and took the jack away, and bingo, the dock is above water. Now explain so it's incredibly wait, amazing. Explain this though. So you're wearing your yeah. bathing suit? Are you wearing a yeah. shirt or no shirt? Yeah, I had a I had a Bronx Zoo shirt on. Okay. Yeah. Bronx yeah. Zoo shirt, bathing suit, or as you would say, swimming trunks. Uh correct. You have the jack. Do you have the jack in one hand and the cinder block in the other? Paint a picture for me. Uh the answer is the answer is no, I made sure I put the dock, I put the jack on the dock, and then I went back and I got the cinder blocks and put the cinder block in position, and then I took the jack and put it on the cinder block underneath it and started to jack it up and had two other cinder blocks ready to stick underneath it when it was when the dock was above water so you're standing so in the was, water it was planning it was great planning yes. you're, you're standing in the water you jack up Correct. the dock do you take the cinder block off the dock and stick it into under the the jack 
No, the cinder blocks were in the water already, right in position. That all I had to do was push them under the dock when it was when the dock was higher. It's amazing, Dad. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Did you ever think yep. that you would be capable of such a thing? Were you scared of injuring yourself? I was afraid of getting killed, yes. I thought the whole dock would fall on me. I thought the jack would collapse. I thought the cinder block would fall on my foot. Yeah, I had all that thing in my head, yes. I have to say it's an amazing story. You know, you, I mean, listen, and if the Dopey Nation doesn't understand this because I've made fun of you on the show so long, my father has done a lot of amazing things in his life. He's built cabinets. <laughs> he's solved a lot of problems. He, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a masterful uh, man, even though he spent his whole life uh, in New York City. You, you've, you've really shown a lot of capacity for problem solving, but I'd have to say in the last 10 years, you haven't done as much. So you out in the oh. lake, jacking up the Wait, dock. I got, I, got, I got through dealing with you for 10 years. I mean, isn't that, doesn't that give me some kind of credit or something? These 10 years have probably been the easiest 10 years of my life besides the first 10 years. Of your life or my life? Of my life. Oh, all right. Wouldn't you say that these 10 years were, were just about the easiest 10 years since the first 20 years? No, I would say the last... Five years of your life has been good, but not the five years before that. I wasn't perfect, but it was on the way. It was a... You were a work in progress. It was an evolution. Now, I'm, yeah. I'm very impressed with that doc story. I'm sure the Dopey Nation will be too. Before you go, I'm going to read you a, a review. Um, I'm always tempted to read you the, uh, you know, the, the white privilege review, but I'm going to skip it. So this is called... Come for the dopey, stay for the sobriety. Sobriety, and it's by H H H J J K H F D H D R U I R seventy four, and he says dopey is the too cool for school version of recovery. Host Dave fulfilled his dream of becoming a music journalist in the mid-90s only to go off the rails and consume his post-college years with a serious heroin addiction. Coming of age during a brief MTV moment where show hosts employed a zany, scattered, on-air style of improvisational chit-chat, Dave and his former co-host Chris discovered that their irreverent interview style and unscripted Howard Stern-inspired gonzo banter was perfectly suited for the new medium. Dave's disarming approach to recovery is fueled by his self-deprecating humor, poking fun of his own looks and his dead-end pastrami-slinging day job, in early, which has become quite a career, I'd have to say. Um, in early episodes, Dave and Chris bickered over Chris's lack of pop culture knowledge, especially classic rock, while Chris would defensively belittle Dave with esoteric knowledge of rehab psychobabble that Chris had clearly picked up five minutes earlier in his grad school classes. It made them both seem juvenile, but at the same time, it endeared Dopey with a folksy charm. This period of Dopey gave me flashbacks to high school where friends would randomly quiz you to name Led Zeppelin band members to prove that you were authentically hardcore and not just a poser. Dave keeps tantalizing fans in the Dopey Nation with hints of a big TV or book deal that would allow him to quit the deli. Uh, but would a slickly packaged dopey with polished scripts, smooth audio transitions, and higher production values be able to maintain dopey's rebellious spirit? Other republic, other recovery podcasts have smooth audio tra- have a 
preachy plastic feel to them, especially the one that rhymes with fast lay, which is a cheap shot. Um, which isn't to say that Dopey doesn't have its blind spots. Dave is no Barbara Walters, and his softball interview style occasionally misses the obvious elephant in the room. Guests sometimes suffer from serious mental health issues or are actively using. Dave tries to be earnestly helpful in these situations, but it's hard to listen to these self-destructive regular guests and occasional celebrity struggle with delusional thinking and personal hygiene issues. That sounds like a rib against Ray. Um, What do you think? Maybe, yeah. But without this craziness, and I think Ray's hygiene is actually good. I think that's just shtick. But without this craziness... Dave would lack the authenticity to hook in audiences who come for the dopey and are subversively persuaded by Dave to stay for the sobriety. That is the essence of Dave's genius. Genius, Dad. Um, Yes, yes, I I hear that word there. Serving as Dave's foil is his father, Alan, who Dave loves. Foil, you see, foil, that's not a good term, you know. What did I say, foil, or I said file? I said foil. No, no, no. I'm just saying the use of that term foil means that you're not being nice to me. I'm plenty That's nice to you. Serving as Dave's okay. foil is his father, Alan, who Dave loves to dismiss as out of touch. I just went on a whole uh-huh. thing about you being able to pick up a fucking deck with one hand. Dave loves... No, that's amazing, yeah. Yes. I, I, you, you were actually giving me compliments. It was really good. Yes, Super. good stuff. Dave loves to troll his dad with negative reviews to get a rise. But dig deeper and it becomes apparent that Alan belies an intergenerational Jewish trauma of parental expectation, success, failure, and redemption. There's bittersweet undercurrent about Dave's interactions. There's a bittersweet undercurrent about Dave's interaction with his father and Dave's complex relationship with his late mother. Did Alan want Dave to grow up and become a doctor, a lawyer, a successful MTV presenter, or maybe a public school educator like himself? He definitely didn't want that. Um, It's clear that Alan never imagined in a million years Dave would become an addict. Alan is a role model in parental acceptance, perseverance, and learning to accept your children through life's twists and turns. I don't know where he's coming up with this stuff. Rounding out what the. Do you, ca- what do you mean? Hold on, that that was very very nice. What do you mean? You're not you're not agreeing with that. Huh? Well, I think you've learned to accept it once I got sober. Rounding out Uh-oh. the cast of characters is Dave's wife Linda, who one imagines is the kind of flower dress shiksa goddess you might meet on fish tour. Linda is clearly out of Dave's league. <laughs> But right. but sometimes nice guys win, and that's the ultimate message of Dopey. Dave kicks his habit, gets the girl, and they wind up with two kids, the occasional dog, and a respectable South Shore picket fence reality along the Montauk branch, a life only made possible by Dave's sobriety. Now, that's a, a, a real review. What do you think, Dad? Uh, it's amazing, uh, and obviously the, the writer really is a is a very very uh, meticulous listener because he he knew that the the uh, quote occasional dog that the dog didn't last that long so it was an occasional dog but it, it was yeah it was a wonderfully written uh, review and uh, 
and to live happily ever after. That's good. I, that's, I hope I'm knocking wood. I'm knocking my head. There's no that's, sense. That's there's exactly no sense happened. in in getting ahead of ourselves with that. It's one day at a time is the deal. Um, I know that's all right. The I question. Get it. I the question is. Does he say I, I throw my my softball interview style? Yeah, I think I disagree with that. I think you you ask hard questions. You may ask you may ask the hard questions nicely, but you still ask hard questions. Hard questions. I mean, you, hard questions. Yeah, I mean you ask questions to get these people to open up, and 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 because I guess uh, I guess if you ask the question in a bad way, they wouldn't open up, but. But if you ask the question uh, in, in, in a certain way, and I think you have that good technique of how you get a good interview out of them. Yeah. So I don't know if it's softball. That's, that doesn't seem right. All right. We're going to end this thing now. I, I think sometimes I do throw softballs, uh, but what the hell? I, I just I, I like the vibe to be good. I'm in it for the vibe, you know, and, uh, and I think the vibe is good. Uh, especially when you're on dad, the dopey nation loves to hear from you. And before you go, I'm going to read one more review. It's, uh, by New York city, Sarah, who says by a privileged white man for privileged white men, one star. I sometimes enjoy this podcast, but I'm often struck. I just love this review. I'm reading it, but I'm often struck by the fact that it's mainly wealthy white men who are misogynistic at best. I can't recall every year. You've read this thing 12 times already. Every time you get me here, you read the same thing 12 times. And, and she's wrong about the wealthy father. When we were raising you and your sister, we weren't wealthy. We worked very, very hard. I don't have this opulent apartment in Manhattan. So she's wrong on those two counts. And if you want to finish reading it, she's right about everything else. The so problem is, oh, hold on. The men sharing have wealthy parents. One with yeah, a Manhattan right. apartment that we hear about in every single episode to fall back on. I know, Dad. Yeah, thank God I can afford it. Yeah, go ahead. You also have that beautiful coffee maker and that fridge. I think you're doing pretty well. Um, I'll yeah, read you another yeah, one. Good. It's a list of coffee coffee maker. Yeah, it was twenty nine ninety nine. All right. Yeah, there's, no, there's no reason to brag about how much you spend on your coffee maker. Okay, I'm going to read one yeah, more right. review. One star, and it just says, Dumb, by L. Gray, 23. Impulsive childish, annoying, basically nails on a chalkboard. All right. Thank you, Al Gray. If you're leaving a review, please make a five-star review and nice and write a nice thing. It doesn't have to be a whole fucking treatise, but a nice thing is a nice thing, right, Dad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, well, when, when, uh, that last one you read, it was a thousand years ago, I think. I don't even know when she wrote that. Anyway, uh, yeah, you're getting wonderful reviews. And the Dopey Nation is doing great. And I hope everybody, everybody uh, stays, stays healthy and, uh, and, and stays safe out there. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and I'm going to say toodles for Chris. All right. So thank you, Dad. Have a beautiful evening. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. So good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. What is there a plane just pass me by? 
and I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive just to show all of these people what it means to be alive but I want to be good so bad want to be so good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad bad desires all I ever had and my shadows getting smaller smaller and smaller and it's high noon where I stand and I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I want to be good so bad Suckers make me mad and I want to call my dad and it's all I ever had and it's all I ever had.